When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Come gather round people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accept that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. If your time to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone. For the times, they are a-changing. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fine Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining us this week to talk about the immortal title track from 1963's The Times They Are A-Changing is fellow Bobcat, Noah Schusterman. Hi, Noah. Hi, Rob. How you doing? I'm doing great. It's so uh, awesome to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. No, thank, thanks for having me. I, I'm, I'm not sure I'm worthy. We'll, we'll discover <laughs> that as we go along. I, yeah, I think we'll um, be fine. <laughs> I, I really but, appreciate uh, the fact that you are, um, I know that you live in Hong Kong, and, you know, uh, that's always sort of a, t- a tough, how do I, you know, how do we plan to do a show together when the time differences are so fast? But you happen to be in my neck of the woods for just, I guess, a couple of weeks right now. And so that's why we're, that's when we're doing this. So I appreciate you taking time out of your short uh, visit here to the States to do this with me. Oh, no, it, it's great. I've actually had a few uh, few online things going on during during my my, uh, my brief stay here. So it's, but it's nice. It's, yeah. Uh, Time, time, time changes. Time zones are a, a challenge at times. <laughs> yeah, um, I do. This may, this maybe will will tie into your Dylan fandom, maybe not. But I, I, as anyone knows of the show, I love talking to people who are you know from very far away. I, I don't get to travel a whole lot. It's one of kind of the great uh, regrets of my life that I haven't traveled more. Though hoping maybe I'll get to do it later on. But I, I'm fascinated. How does someone who was born here in the United States end up living in Hong Kong? Um. Uh, in my case, it was a, it was something I looked for. Um, uh, my uh, my wife grew up there. Her family's from there, and she by the time I met her, she'd been living in the U.S. for for most of her life. But I was uh, when once we had a kid, I was always looking for an opportunity to to spend a few years there, and I actually didn't find that. What I found was a, a full time job, um, paying me more money than I ever expected, just for being a history professor. <laughs> Um, and uh and i took it for better and for worse we've been there ever since wow that's 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 amazing i mean what how long how long have you been there we got there in 2014 um and for the most part we've we've been there uh we've been there since in my situation literally i mean we moved to to hong kong and when we did that my father-in-law picked us up in the airport so it wasn't the leap into the unknown that that a lot of people would have Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, for me, it's still, you know, like it, it took a while to get used to wandering around, you know, finding my, finding my way. My Cantonese, I work in it, work in it. It's still hard. <laughs> wow. That's, did you know, how much of the language did you know when you got there? Uh, good morning. Hello. Um, <laughs> the names, uh, the formal names I would use for my in-laws. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. I don't even call them. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that is absolutely amazing. Now, now, living in Hong Kong, do you get to travel around outside of, you know, outside of there often? Or are you working a lot? I mean, you get to see. That's the other thing I'm always fascinated by is that people, you know, in living in other continents, 
uh, you know, you, you are kind of neighboring other places a lot more readily than kind of you know, a lot of people that live here in the States. You know, it, until the until COVID hits, this was the, the thing we really hadn't taken advantage of enough. I've been to Japan once. I've been to Singapore once. There's a train that, that goes right in front of our apartment. I mean, and it, it, it comes every two or three minutes. And it, it, it used to go to mainland China, and we just never did it. Wow. Um, every two to three minutes. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's, just that's just during COVID. It was like every 90 seconds before that. Unbelievable. Wow. That is the train system. I mean, if you're if you're used to the New York City subway, the, the train system there really is. Something. Oh, that is really cool. All right, so um, all right. Well, that, that that's oh, again, I I could turn this into a travel show for someone who hasn't traveled. I could turn this into a travel show so easily because again, I'm just sort of fascinated by people's adventures uh, all over the globe. But we'll we'll save that conversation for another for another time, perhaps. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to be talking about the times they are a changing. Obviously, one of Bob Dylan's most famous songs. I might even argue his most famous song, or at the very least, the most famous phrase that he has contributed to the culture. The times they are changing. But again, we we will get to all that shortly. But I mean, no, I got to find out how did you become a fan? You know, I was born in 69. And growing up, you know, my, my parents, they were responsible, professional, homeowning people. You know, nobody would look at them and call them hippies, but they were, you know, maybe hippie adjacent, mom <laughs> especially. And so there, there was always music around. Um, it was probably, I don't know, 60% Beatles. Uh, but the rest of it that I remember from my childhood was this sort of mix of, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, Free to Be You and Me was a big one, and Pete Seeger, actually. And Dylan was always part of that mix. I, I don't remember not knowing some of Dylan's songs. I don't remember not knowing what his voice sounded like, sounds like. Um, so uh, there was always a sort of awareness of it. Then I, I've been thinking about this because I know you asked your guests. When I was in 11th grade, 12th grade, I, I started seeing myself maybe a little bit less in, in the music I'd been listening to, like The Clash or Joe Jackson, and a little bit more in... 60s, post-60s kind of music. Um, Dylan was part of that. The, the Dead, the Grateful Dead was a big part of that um, for those those few years. Um, you get to college, I'm living in the dorms freshman year, and there's just sort of a, you know, you don't really have your own space, so you're hearing other people's music. And and I got a lot of, started to know a lot more of, of Dylan's songs. And, you know, there's, it's, there's a lot of sitting around, you know, one or two guys have a guitar, people are singing, and there's a lot of Dylan in that. Um, but the, the big thing that happened was, uh, I think, um, summer after freshman year, and that was my first real, real big broken heart. And it was just a lot of blood on the tracks sort of over <laughs> and over and over. And, I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh at your pain, but, but, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think probably, you know, two thirds of the, your listeners have been there. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, not, I mean, probably close to 100% on the heartache, but two thirds with the heartache plus blood on the track. Yep, yep. But yep. when I came out on the other side of that, I just, that was my my real period of just listening to, to Dylan over and over, listening to Blonde on Blonde, um, a Highway 61, Freewheel and Bob Dylan, um, still blood on the tracks and uh, Desire. I'm probably forgetting one or two, but those those remain to me really the, 
the key albums, the ones I, and it, it, it's not like some obscure choice there. These are, mm. these are the albums that, that for me were really fundamental in kind of finding my way, uh, finding my way, figuring out who I was, figuring out the world. You know, it's, it, it, Dylan spoke to me, which is, you know, really not a very unique phenomenon. Um, even if it kind of feels like it is. <laughs> right. So have you seen him live? Uh, kind of. Um, so in, uh, in 87, uh, I'm from Philadelphia. In 87, I saw the dead and Dylan at JFK stadium. Mm. Uh, but that, that was a long day. Uh, it was a summer day. I remember I was working as a bike messenger then and I'd gotten, I'd actually gotten, clipped by a cab earlier that day I, um, I had stitches in my in my finger I, I you know I was fine except for the stitches in my finger but like I had this bandage on my hand that kept getting undone there were these you know well-meaning deadheads that were trying to redo it just <laughs> the, the day just dragged on and on so by the time Dylan came on I I wasn't really paying attention and then the next summer I don't know if you know the man music center oh sure I've been there a bunch of times well, we, you know, Dylan came and we camped out. Um, you can, if you don't buy tickets, you know, because you're a broke college student, with your broke college student friends, you can go camp. You can go just lay down a blanket on the, uh, on the lawn, uh, behind where the seats end. And so we did that, and around halfway through, we got kicked out. <laughs> not just us personally, but like everybody on the lawn. So, so I, it's not like I've never seen Dylan, but it's it's close to like I've never seen Dylan. Gotcha. When you went to see him with the dead, how far away were you? Because, I mean, for those people who don't know, JFK, uh, again, another Philadelphia landmark, was huge. I mean, it's a huge stadium. So if you were far away, it could almost be like you were the length of a football field away from the, the stage. We were kind of, by that point, we were wandering around to where you could wander around. Uh, early in the dead set, we, me and a couple of my friends had tried to be close enough to be able to see. Uh, and that was just crowded and hot. So by the time Dylan came on, we were, yeah, we were pretty far back. They had, for what for the time, were big screens, decent screens. Um, and you could hear it loud enough, but it wasn't. I, I saw two concerts at JFK, and I, I don't miss it. I don't miss it as a venue. Been, it's been torn down since. <laughs> yes, it's it's long gone. It was a yeah, it was a huge place. Has he ever? I'm trying to think. I'm not that I've mapped all his tours in my head, but has he ever played in Hong Kong since you've been there? I know he's played there, but has he? Was he ever around when you've been there? To, to could could you have gone to see him at some point in the last couple of years? Not that I know of, but I, I live this. I mean, it's nobody in Hong Kong is secluded, but I there's a sort of cultural center of Hong Kong, of cultural center of expat Hong Kong uh, that I, 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 you know, I, I don't keep track of what concerts come, what, um, who's playing. Um, so uh, I don't think so, but I, I, I couldn't say for sure. I've only gone and seen one concert there the whole time I've been there. And that was just because a personal friend was, was playing. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, all right. Well, that's again, it's, it's, <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever seen Dylan in a hall. That's, I mean, I've seen him in Madison square garden, which is very big. 
but uh, I've never seen him at one at like a JFK where the it's just you know this gargantuan play. I, to me, a concert in a, in a hall that big would just be like ah, this, this seems sort of daunting to me. But uh, I know that you know him and the Dead could fill it because they were that was a big 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 tour at the time. So uh, okay, so the times they are changing now. I'm fascinated in that this song almost never has been suggested by a guest. A couple of hundred guests that I've had over the course of these episodes. And I asked people to name songs and I asked them to name more than one because I want to be able to pick, uh, you know, uh, the song out of the, out of the list. This song is almost never mentioned from anybody. And I find that fascinating because obviously it is one of his you know, most famous uh, compositions. And as I said, that, that just that phrase has been part of the culture for so long that, you know, there are lots of people, including myself, before I really got into Bob, who didn't really know where it comes from. It's just part of the culture. You just see it. You see it as, you know, you see it paraphrased. You see it in, in uh, I remember, again, before I knew Bob, I, it was uh, mentioned in an episode of Cheers once. And I remember, you know, just knowing the phrase. I knew what it meant, but I wouldn't have been able to tell you that it was a song and that it was by Bob Dylan and it was from this year or whatever, whatever, whatever. So I'm kind of fascinated. Why did you want to talk about this one? Well, I mean, I'm fascinated by why others haven't. Is it do like hardcore Dylan fans not like this song? Well, that's see that we'll talk about that. I I feel like Dylan himself (laughs) has kept this song maybe a little bit of a, at a distance in some ways. I mean, there's other times where he clearly has not, and we'll talk about the various live incarnations uh, that it's had. And, and sometimes he's had moments of where, you know, he's done special performances where he only sings this song. But I feel like as compared to, say, Like a Rolling Stone or Blown in the Wind or Tangled Up in Blue, the other songs that are Knocking on Heaven's Door, the other songs that are these sort of, you would put on the Mount Olympus of his most famous songs, I feel like this one, yeah, a lot of people have a little, a little bit of a, you know, like it's maybe become such a part of the culture that it's lost some of that connection to the fact that it's an original song. I don't know. I mean, again, we, I mean, to speak for other people, but it, yeah, it's a, it's, it's not, it seems like a song that not everybody loves, even though, like I said, it's certainly one of the most famous songs of the last half century. Yeah. I don't know. Um, Actually, uh, I, Knock It on Heaven's Door never really did it for me. Um, but no, I mean, this is, a, it's, this is a great song. It's a historic song. Uh, you know, when I, I, the commentary I see on it, I, I didn't look hard. Um, but there's maybe this view that he was being a little cynical in, in setting out to write something that would be a kind of anthem. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it, so many people try to write an anthem and just fail dismally. Right. <laughs> he, he tried it, and there it is. I mean, this is there's not a lot of. I don't know of any song that that accomplished what this song accomplished. You know, like if you try to, I, I I did this a few years ago, just you know, back when people sort of talk music on Facebook, and I was like, you know, songs that can sum up a decade, and you know, you you don't get good answers for the other decades right yeah you know, like what's like, the what's the 170 song what yeah what song would that be but the 60s this is in every documentary every time life documentary about the 60s this is the song you're gonna hear yeah i mean for the 90s you know the 90s sort of changed with those first four chords of smells like teen spirit <laughs> but but the message of this song isn't even decipherable 
you know, whereas this song, it, you know, it, it's it's a moment frozen in time, and, you know, an anthem for a generation. It, it's it's an astonishing accomplishment. The lyrics are a little straightforward. Um, one of the great fun things of of listening to Dylan is trying to to find the meanings. You know, sheet metal memory of Cannery Row. <laughs> And so this song doesn't have that. Um, it doesn't even have the, you know, what is it blowing in the wind? Is that, you know, because it's everywhere? Is that because it's nowhere? You know, there's a sort of enigma there. Um, and this one is more, much more straightforward uh, in that sense. But no, I, I, to be honest, I mean, I was, you know, the, the process of picking which song I would do, I, I was thinking, you know, when I saw how many, episodes into it you were you know sort of um trying to you know dig deep into some of the lesser known stuff you know what else is there and you know i just sort of assumed that that this one would have been taken yeah no because i'm not you know uh, i don't i'm not worthy um the uh you have you know the people you have on you know was it four episodes you did uh it's a hard rains are gonna fall Mm-hmm. And your guest had actually written a book about it. Right. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. You no, know, Sandra Portella. Yeah. Yeah. You're, um, you know, you ask people how many concerts they've been to. They're saying, you know, 20, 30. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, Dylan, like I said, it's fundamental for me, but I'm also, I'm not a super fan. I don't, you know, there's more Dylan that I don't know than there is that I know. Well, well, okay. Let's talk about that a little bit. I, I, I find the whole notion of super fans to be a little tiresome in general because uh, I think there's there's some kind of inherent gatekeeping to that, and I don't like gatekeeping in in any sense. I don't like uh, anybody being told, you know, you're not enough of a fan. Like, who gets to decide that sort of thing? I mean, um, I I think that I'm as big of a fan as you know any person really could be. But at the same time, uh, there was a point where I was collecting his his bootlegs, and I sort of caught myself saying, "Do I need to spend thirty dollars for another concert where I'm going to hear yet another version of All Along the Watchtower?" I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I do. You know, like, and and you know, there, I'm sure there are people who need to hear every note he's ever put down, and I would not want someone to kind of look at me and be like, "Oh, well, you're not." I just don't. I just don't believe in that. So. That's why this show is not just, as you say, super fans. It's people of all different levels because people engage with the work in different ways. And so that to me is what's interesting. You know, not that they have, not just having people on that have tracked down every single outtake and can continue. You know, I mean, to me, that's, you know, not that that's nothing wrong with that, but just to me, that doesn't, you know, it doesn't inherently make you a, a better fan of the music versus something else. So I mean, as opposed, yeah. So as to being not worthy, please, yeah. Let's let's not let's not worry about that. Regarding times there are changes. Okay. Well, thank you. Yes, regarding this song though, it's sort of interesting. I, one of the quotes I found about this was right after he wrote it uh, in September of '63. Uh, he uh, his friend Tony Glover stopped by, and apparently he picked up the lyric sheet of the, as Dylan was working on the song, and he read the line, "Come, senators, congressmen, please heed the call." And he turned to Bob and he says what is this shit, man? And <laughs> Dylan shrugged his shoulders and replied, well, you know, it seems to be what people want to hear. Now, I'm not going to suggest for one moment that that quote is what has damaged the song in some people's minds because only 
obsessive, as you say, super fans would even know that quote. But I do wonder sometimes if when I, when I have read that quote, I've read it in you know several different places. I do wonder if that's almost Bob wanting to, by dismissing it as sort of a, a, a make ready, like, oh, I just wrote something people want to hear, which obviously uh, puts it across as kind of a cynical gesture a little bit. Like, oh, I just want to write an anthem. And as you say, you know, people try to write anthems and they fail miserably. Uh, Dylan's able to do it. But I almost wonder if that was something that he was uncomfortable think he was uncomfortable being so direct as you're talking about the, as you say the language is very stripped down in this song and very simple there is no interpretation there is no real you know there's really only kind of one way to take the song really even though it's been called a protest song and i would argue it's not a protest song but i sometimes i think was bob worried about coming across as almost too genuine and so we had to kind of retreat into that skin a little like, well, it's, you know, I just tossed it off. It's, it's, it's something people want to hear. And I almost wonder about that because it's, you know, I mean, as you say, you read the lyrics and you listen to some of the performances of this song and it's incredibly powerful. It's, inc- it's incredibly powerful. And yet here's his buddy kind of going, what is this? Shit? Like immediately regarding it as shit. I mean, imagine that your friend you know knowing what we know about this song and somebody's reading it and, and just giving the guy giving bob that kind of grief for writing it. I, I don't know i mean it, i i've seen that quote too um it's hard to put yourself out there and mm-hmm. uh it's hard to to respond to criticism you know it's hard to know how you'll respond to criticism and this is criticism i don't i don't know how much dylan was getting it uh getting of that from his friends um, you, you'd know that better than I do, but it, yeah, it's um, it, it come senators, congressmen, please heed the call. It, it's true. It's not a very Dylan-like line, you know. Prophesize with your pen. That's a little bit more in his in his wheelhouse, and so I don't know. I, I don't know if it's a self-defensive move to to agree with it, to to sort of endorse the criticism. I don't know. I I. I I guess the other thing to say is that I'd, I'd known this song for decades before I'd, I'd heard that quote. So mm-hmm. it doesn't, it doesn't change my opinion of the song. I also, you know, Dylan says different things about his different songs at different times and right. um, cycles from what I can tell cycles through which ones he wants to embrace and which ones he wants to leave, be, leave behind. Yeah. Uh, right. It's well, okay. Let's talk about the, the lyrics a little bit. Um, again, he's, he's, it's a song that I, when I went when I went back and looked up like how many times he's performed it, it's not as many as you would expect considering the the, the how famous the song is and it's nothing compared to some of the other of his more famous tunes. Yet you can look through the albums that it's been on and it's appeared on a lot of live albums. You know, I mean he's he's he has pulled it out at these moments again, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the the, the second verse with the come writers and critics who prophesize with your pen and keep your eyes wide. The chance won't come again. It don't speak too soon for the wheels still in spin. And there's no telling who that it's naming for the loser. Now will be later to win for the times they are a changing. And then he gets to the come senators, congressman, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway. Don't block up the hall for he that gets hurt will be he who is stalled. There's a battle outside and it's raging. It'll soon take your windows and rattle your walls for the times they are a changing. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, I mean, people have said this is a, you know, it's a protest song, but in, in a lot of ways it's not a protest song because he's not, 
it's not he's not arguing that something needs to change. He's stating that, you know, quite literally, the times have changed. And he's talking to people that are caught up in the maelstrom of this and are kind of looking around and a little, ang- you know, maybe angry, frustrated, confused as to what's going on. And he's trying to say to those people, catch up. Catch up to what's happening. This is what's going on. This is this is where things are going, uh, and you are potentially either you know standing uh, what a thwart history and yelling stop or whatever. But I and I never really thought of it till I sort of you know sat when we decided we were going to do this. Thought about that. I was like, yeah, it's not really protest. It's really him saying talking to the people that might be left behind in these changes or or maybe trying to stop them. And that to me is quite interesting. It's kind of a very kind song in some ways of saying, hey, you know, you got to catch up to what's going on because you're going to get left behind. I thought that was kind of interesting. I hear what you're saying, but I, 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 I've I, never heard that song that way. Hmm. This song that way. I've always heard this as, you know, the, we we have arrived. And this is, this is, it's not, it's, it's the generational song. It's not just a generational song. It's the generational song. This is the, the baby boomers are coming of age. This is their turn. I guess this is more in the next verse, but you know, and it, it's time for the the previous generation, the the gatekeepers, mm-hmm. literally don't stand in the doorway, uh, to to recognize that, um, and that this is a song which will motivate um, younger people fighting for change. Um, and it's it's a song. He it's what a 60, 1963, 1964? Yeah, sixty three. Um, yeah, sixty three. Yeah, that's early. I mean, what we think of is, I mean, speaking as a Gen Xer, what what we think of as the sixties is not nineteen sixty to nineteen seventy. It's like nineteen sixty five to seventy three, something like that. You know, the first Vietnam War protests, large scale protests, were until sixty five. The you know, this isn't you can't tell yet that times are a changing um in 63 at least that that's that's what it's you know you look at the beatles albums then they're still rock and roll beatles albums but um but you know he has a way of being ahead of the times on stuff like that and the times and using this you, you can't escape this <laughs> um, but i i do see this as a protest song i, I see okay. this as one of the fundamental protest songs of of, of american history Mm. Yeah, um, I, as I've talked about in, in so many other episodes, he does seem to have this wire in his head that is attuned to stuff that is out there in the, forgive me for using this word, zeitgeist, I guess. But most This is people, a zeitgeist song. Yeah. Historians but, hate talking about zeitgeist, but this is a zeitgeist song. Yeah. Like he's he's able to talk about the, he's able to tune into it and get it down and put it on a record way ahead of the average person understanding what he's talking about. And there are times where he's so far ahead is that word time. We say the word times a lot. He's so yeah. far ahead that when you get to it, you just kind of shake, you know, furrow your brow a little bit. Like, what the hell is he talking about? And then a year later, something happens and you go, Oh, okay. That's what we're talking about. And we just talked about it a couple episodes on the high water show, you know, where he talks about, he's using the phrase, I want him dead or alive which is an old-timey phrase. And then a year later, you've got the President of the United States using that exact phrase. I mean, it's like he's just plugged into these things somehow. And I always, you know, not to get too far-filled, I always wonder, is that 
part of the reason he is so determined when he tours to be out there among the people, like to, to go anonymously and ride his bike around and go see local shows and, and kind of soak in the culture of wherever he goes, as opposed to say, you know, another rock act who was so famous that they just live on the tour bus and their hotel. And then they go to the show and then repeat, you know, and they never actually encounter regular people. He seems absolutely determined to do that. And that's got to be hard, of course, with some of his level of fame, but he seems to be able to project a sort of sphere of anonymity that allows him to travel around kind of relatively unnoticed or at least unbothered. And I wonder if that how he picks this stuff up, because as you say, I mean, you know, when, in every documentary about the 60s, it's just a times of tumultuous change. But yeah, you, that's 65, 66. I mean, this is before the Kennedy assassination. And bang, two months later, you have that. And all of a sudden, you're like, yeah, wow. well, the times they are changing, all right, but not exactly necessarily <laughs> in the way he's talking about. But nevertheless, that phrase could not be more true. No, that's a great a great event to, to peg it to. I didn't, I didn't make the link, but yeah, of course. That's it. I, I walk around completely anonymously. And, you know, I don't pick up on these things. <laughs> well, right. Well, yeah, me too. You know, nobody, I don't, I'm not, uh, I'm not tuned into these things. I'm always catching up, uh, you know, in the, in the, you know, way behind, getting way behind everybody. But Bob seems to, I don't know, be able to do that. And as you say, this is, he's writing this in like the summer of 63, puts it out on the record, record comes out in, in, you know, again, September 63. And then there's even a quote from him apparently where he felt like he had to sing this in concerts after the Kennedy assassination, but he felt like he, I think he used the word fraud or was kind of like saying, why am I even doing this? Like what, I don't even know what any of this means anymore. Uh, because it's saying you don't, you, you know, the song is one of optimism and then you hear that event and there's obviously not a lot of optimism to be found going on. Now uh, we talked about uh, the, the next verse he says, come mothers and fathers, throughout the land and don't criticize what you can't understand your sons and your daughters are beyond your command your old road is rapidly aging please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand for the times they are changing and that i think that's probably my favorite couple of lines is your sons and your daughters are beyond your command uh that's such a powerful use of words so few words, you know, five words and four words, mm -hmm. but just putting that across of, you know, your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. It's just so resonant to every generation, everything, everybody experiences that where they break out of that structure and beyond your command is just, again, it, it, when I listened, I don't, I don't admit, I don't listen to the song a whole lot, but when I do, those are always the lines that really pop the most for me. I think this is, yeah, I think this is in some ways the most important verse. Because I see it, like I said, I see this as a protest song. Um, but it's also, it's a generational song. It's a generational anthem. And I think it would be without this verse. Uh, but to have it be explicitly brought up, um, I think it really, it, it hammers it home. Um, this This divide between a generation that would like to keep things as they are and a generation that wants to to break out of that. Um, that said, you know, as I've been thinking about this song and this verse, there's, you know, like, because it's a generational song, but it, it's not my generation. I don't, I don't think it's your generation either. Nope. Um, you know, you're, you know, 
Come mothers and fathers throughout the land. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. But but wait, because your grandchildren are going to be far more consumer oriented. You know, there's this, uh, I don't know, I, I, I listen to this and I, I think, you know, what happened between the this generation and my generation? Because, you know, there was a reason why when I was looking for, you know, when I was, you know, figuring out what kind of music to listen to as a, as a teenager, that, that this kind of stuff appealed to me. Because this sort of message of, you know, not just this song, but but music in general, music that had a message of social justice, it was it was harder to come by in the in the 80s. Uh, and, you know, the 80s were the, the period of, you know, you took the some of the social gains of the 60s, you know, they stopped having a draft and they stopped having so much, you know, trying to have so much control over young people's sexual behavior. But but the rest of the social justice message was was just so far gone. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're living that time again of watching things get rolled back that we thought were once yeah. safe, uh, which again, is just sort of a, you hear again, you hear this song when you listen to it again, you're like, well, okay. Yeah. I, it's, uh, <laughs> um, I, I do like the line again in that same verse, which is please get out of the new one. If you can't lend your hand, it's kind of like what I was referring to earlier. I like that the song does extend at least a, a, a you know, sort of metaphorical hand to the older generation who might be willing to help out. I, I do. I think that's part of the reason that the song has endured as much as it has is that I think it does have, a, it, it's, it's uncompromising about the change, but it's not just saying to the old people, you're, you're all fossils and you're all the enemy, get out of the way. And that's it. It, it, it does at least say, Hey, there are older people. If you might be willing to contribute to this, lend your hand, you know, and now he is saying, you know, if you're not willing to then get out of the way. But I, I, I find that, that act of kindness to be um, very charming, you know, that he is no, saying not, not everybody that's old is necessarily the problem. Right. Right. And Pete Seeger, I mean, the, the electric part, notwithstanding, well, I guess we're not there yet. So Pete <laughs> right, Seeger yeah. is not the problem. When he got through, he hadn't been the problem. Alan Ginsberg certainly wasn't the problem. Right. Um, and then the, the final verse, he says, the line, it is drawn, the curse, it is cast. The slow one now will later be fast as the present now will later be past. Uh, that's where we are. The older is rapidly fading and the first one now will later be last for the times they are changing. And it's kind of funny because, the, of course, on this same record is When the Ship Comes In, which we covered on the show. It's a terrific song, thematically pretty similar. And the, when the the... The, when the ship comes in is predicting a future change. And here's the change. The, the change has arrived. Now that song comes later in the record. Uh, so chronologically, if you want to put this in one sort of a uh, Bob Dylan cinematic universe, that, that song's a prequel to this song. Now this, of course, this is the title track. It leads off the record, but it's sort of funny that that when the ship comes in is, is saying a lot of the same things, but predicting the change is coming and, you know, at the front of the record, he's already saying, no, the change is here. Uh, and you know, the, the songs don't, they, they, I love that song. I'm glad it's on the record, but it's sort of funny that he was writing that in one moment. And he, cause he wrote when the, when the ship comes in before this, and that was in response to a specific event of sort of generational kind of thing where like a snooty hotel clerk refused to give him a room because he looked like this little scruffy young man and nobody knew, knew who <laughs> knew who he was. But here he's saying, bang, here it is. The, 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 you know, the, the ship has come in, in fact, in this song. Yeah. 
And you were saying before you didn't think it was a protest song. You thought it was talking about there is something happening in Just Adjust. And I, I, rereading these, this last verse with, with that in mind, yeah, that fits. Um, this, this one, it's more about, I mean, this is almost turn, turn, turn stuff. This is, mm-hmm. um, you know, talking about a change that's, that's going to happen or is happening. Um, it's not, I guess it's not about activism. It's not about people getting together to make the change happen. Whereas I, I feel like in the other verses it is. Yeah, I mean, I might be a little limiting in in thinking what I think of as a protest song. And that when I think of protest songs, I am thinking of a specific event that the song is trying to, to affect, whether it's Blown in the Wind or Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll or Hurricane, Hurricane or George, yeah. George Jackson. You know, he's talking about a specific wrong that he would like, that the singer would like to be righted by this helping and galvanize the forces by this song. This is a more broad based kind of song, but yeah, I would say I'm probably being a little limited and limiting in, in my thoughts about calling it not a protest song, but it's, it's, it's announcing something. And it really is, you know, again, as you said at the top of the show, a lot of people have tried to write protest songs or tried to write anthems like this and they fail miserably. And he was obviously, you know, completely burning on all thrusters at this point. And after he writes an album full of songs like Blown in the Wind and A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, he then writes this. Yeah. And it's just another song. And again, when you think about the Blown in the Wind is track one, side one of Freewheeling. And then Times Are Changing is track one, side one of this record. And I mean, obviously, he didn't quite continue that with another side because that became a very different record. But at the times, I have to wonder, people were like, God, is this guy... How is this guy able to do this? Like every, you know, every first song is like some huge thing that just sort of defines the culture. Like, my God, this guy, how is he able to do this? And, and you, you know, talk about the, the language. It is a lot of very old timey biblical language. Mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, the, uh, changing is a, you know, very particular choice to use as opposed to saying the times they are changing. It's a uh, changing. It's like a hard rains are uh, going to fall. He's placing it in a sort of a biblical context which again i think gives the song part of the reason it's kind of like this this permanence but it's not i mean if it just says the times are changing like nobody gets to i don't think nobody gets to own that phrase mm-hmm. it's, just, it's just too basic it's like you right. can't say like oh it's four o'clock like oh that's my phrase right. everybody says it. <laughs> but you put the, the times they are a change and that's a dylan quote right it makes it specific to him uh, when you add yeah. that, oh, change in, it becomes a very specific reference to something. So yeah. do you, now I, I mentioned uh, how many times he's performed this live. He's done it 663 times uh, in the six, almost 60 years the song has been in existence. So that's, again, for Bob Dylan standards, that's not a lot. You know, he's got other songs that are in the thousands at this point. So it's not a song that he does a whole lot in concert. Uh, the last time was in August of 2009. The first time was October of 1963. So good Lord, we're not even a month away from Murder Most Foul. But you look at it and it's on a lot of his live records. It's on at the Budokan record. Uh, there's an outtake, uh, there's an alternate version on the first bootleg series. He does it on MTV Unplugged. I completely forgot that he did it on the MTV Unplugged oh, record. Wow. I saw that. And I was like, he did? I don't even remember that. And I had to pull the CD out and find it. Um, and of course, when he was invited in, I believe it was 2009 to perform for Barack Obama at the White House at the, 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 the um, celebration of the civil rights movement, he sang this song. 
He sang this song. Not any of the others he could have chosen. He sang this one and this one only. Uh, and so, you know, it's a song that, again, I think maybe he's kept a little bit of a distance from as a performer. But yet, you know, when I look at these, I look at all these albums, like, well, it does keep popping up in these big live records. So obviously he's he's got some connection to it, maybe stronger than I give him credit for. Well, I mean, is it, you know, some some bands have songs that they only play on special occasions. I, mm. I, I mean, I'm just speculating here. Mm. You know, the Clash used to do that. They would only play uh, White Riot, you know, rare concerts. Or I'm so bored. I, there was some something like that. I might even be just repeating something my friend made up. But, um, you know, this was, you know, I don't know how into the dead you were, but people used to go to dead concerts and yell, St. Stephen, St. Stephen, because they knew they'd ne- the, the, the band would never play it. Okay, is that um, one of their more obscure songs? It's actually kind of a poppy hit from one of their early albums. There's great live versions. Um, but for some reason, they stopped playing it, and, hmm. and it kind of became a thing. But a poppy hit by Grateful Dead Skip. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, there is an alternate take of it from the bootleg series, as I mentioned. Have you heard that one? Oh, I Yes, but not for not recently. I was looking at I was looking for other stuff. I listened recently to the so I, I listened recently to the one of the bootleg volume with the Philharmonic concert has a, a version mm-hmm. which struck me as fairly close to the original as as much as any live version would be to to a studio song. Um, I've I've listened to some, but I to me this is you know. The one that's that's you know whatever pressed in wax uh, on the album like that that's the version mm-hmm. uh, to me um, you know that was the one that uh, like Columbia I guess I don't know made you know millions of copies of that was played hundreds of millions if not billions of times and that it played through college dorms and high school uh, students bedrooms and 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 that that's the one that that really, I think, shaped the generation. Um, that, uh, Dylan, you know, he, he writes the songs, he records them, and, and they go off into the world as, you know, for, for most of his career as this, you know, whatever, grooved plastic discs. <laughs> and and, and once, once that happens, it's, you know, it's out in the world. I, I, maybe Dylan doesn't have the control over it he wants to once that happens. Because um, you talk about how, to the extent I'd never been aware of before I started listening to your podcast, how much you'll change the lyrics of some songs from uh, from concert to concert, from tour to tour. Uh, but I, I I haven't focused that much on his different versions because to me this is there's one version that one definitive version that that really stands above them all in just monumental way. Yeah, uh, the reason I asked about that is because the one in the bootleg series, it's lyrically the same. In fact, uh, as you just sort of talked about it, I don't think he's ever really changed the lyrics. I'm not aware of another version that uh, has been substantially changed in any real way. Um, but the the bootleg series version, it's the same tune, it's the same you know lyrics, but the performance is just not the it's just not the one on the record. And they kind of knew what was the best take. And I, as a, you know, someone who knows okay. nothing about how to talk about music, I'm not, maybe there's some 
way he's singing it that's you know obvious to to the a trained ear that they can say oh yeah no that he's doing he's going up instead of going down or whatever but to me the one on the record has got that there's something about the vocal performance that just gets it right while the one on the bootleg series you go yeah it's not mm, it's not exactly it and so he obviously knew no 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 this is the one that we're going to use this is the one to use and as a song uh, and we'll talk a little bit about how many times it's been covered because you might imagine this has been covered one of his most covered songs the list of you go to the um wikipedia page for the song and the list of covers is is mile long do you feel like this song works as a kind of living document throughout the ages or is it frozen in time for that generation and it's still obviously it's still enjoyable but do you feel it's transferable across generations and in, in, in different times or you know different generations encounter it i don't know um there's a lot there's a lot more dylan covers that i dislike out there than there are that i like <laughs> you know um it's not that there are i mean obviously they're great ones um and actually i mean for me watchtowers it's only a Hendrix song, I, I, right? You know, like I, and um, and the, the I think there's two other Hendrix covers, and I, I think those are both great. But I, I made it twenty thirty seconds into Bruce Springsteen's version, and I just couldn't take it. <laughs> um, and I like Bruce Springsteen a mm-hmm. lot, and I don't know, I like the Birds. Their I, I their version of uh, of the song, um, it really doesn't do it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, it's not up to me to say that this could never have a successful cover because there's musicians who are brilliant who do things that I could never in a million years have, have thought possible. But to me, the, the Dylan song is, is yeah, it, it's, it's, it's as much of a crystallized moment uh, as any other song I've, I've, ever, I've ever come across. Like I said, you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit has has an aspect of that but it doesn't but but for dylan i mean maybe you could say dylan it's just the lyrics because those chord patterns and whatnot could have been you know written 10 years earlier but um but i i i don't know it's hard to think of well for one thing no no song is going to have no cover of this is going to have the resonance with a, a later generation the way that his song did with the the baby boom so there's that right off. Mm. Um, yeah, I think. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, please, please. I'll drink some water. I no, I'm just gonna say that it, it's uh, it's a song that some I've heard some people cover, and when they cover it, and I'm not gonna get into the specifics of these people because I don't like to, I don't like to dump on anybody if I can avoid it. Um, I've heard some covers that it it when they sing it, it sounds like a museum piece, and it's kind of stripped of all the life. You know, all the lights been been taken out of it because it just seems like it's oh, kind of wasn't that a great time? Let's sing this, and the, there are versions <laughs> of that that I've heard. And then I remembered hearing at the 30th anniversary tribute concert, Tracy Chapman did it, and I absolutely love her version. Now, maybe partly because I like Tracy Chapman just in general, I find her uh, just her her voice to be you know beautiful and strong. But like I just heard, you know, I heard her sing it. And in you know this is 1992, you know a good 30 years removed from its original composition. But when I heard her do it, to me it sounded as vital and alive as when I hear Bob's version. So it's like okay, and she didn't change it in any real way. 
The tune is the same. The lyrics are the same. So to me, it's like, oh, okay, this thing really can still live and breathe. Just depends on the intention of the singer who's who's singing it. Sure. And uh, I like Tracy Chapman too. Um, and I should listen to that, to that one. Um, but yeah, no, and Tracy Chapman, see, I, one of the things with Dylan, and, and I've heard you talking about this with um, Peter, Paul, and Mary covering Dylan. There's a lot of covers that kind of take his edge off. Mm-hmm. You know, you said they make it pretty. And mm-hmm. those I can never take. Mm-hmm. Th- those covers of Dylan. I've also got this pet peeve with, you know, some of the covers of this song. They'll, um, they'll put it in 4-4 time. You know, the song is, it's, it, it's a waltz. It's, a, it's in 3-4 time. And so when they put it into 4-4 time, it, it just, it, it, I don't know. I'm not, I, I'm not the, Sort of person that would normally be bothered by something like that, but it, it just it just does. So, um, and I guess that you know that's sort of that was the the classic cover was was the birds one, but but no, I I, I just I'm, I'm more than more than any other of his other songs. I think that when you when you cover this, I guess I see what you mean. You, the risks of doing a museum piece are are going to be extremely high. The risks yeah. of making this sound like a, let's all talk about the 1960s now. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're right. Exactly. Are much higher. Yeah, uh, and I think part of the reason that could be again is because the phrase itself, the times of change, has become such a part of the culture that it has been appropriated by some people that uh, maybe even with the best of intentions, or in some cases, probably you know, some nefarious intentions when you hear it, you kind of go, what really? And one, I, there's a couple examples I have that I, I dug up in my research, which I found very funny. So there, I mean, among the covers of this record is Peter Paul and Mary, Simon and Garfunkel, the beach boys, Odetta, Cher, the Hollies, Nina Simone, Josephine Baker, uh, James Taylor and Carly Simon, the Wanderers, Billy Joel, of course, did it for his, uh, his concerts, his uh, live album when he went to Russia, as I mentioned, Tracy Chapman, Richie Havens, of course, Phil Collins, Judy Collins, uh, Joan Baez, no kid there, no kidding there. Uh, Keb Moe, uh, Brian Ferry, uh, uh, as you mentioned, Bruce Springsteen, Flogging Molly, and the list goes, uh, Neil Young, the list goes on and on. But one that I found that was really quite funny was there was Burl Ives covered it. And <laughs> Burl Ives had a surprisingly robust career covering 60s rock acts. Uh, and right, not, right. Only, not only did he cover Times Era Change in 1968, but he named the album the times they are changing and it was wow. produced by Bob Johnston, my Bob's longtime producer. So, and you know, Billy I mean, I mean no, no offense to Burl Ives, but I do wonder if the song does become a little bit of a joke when someone so clearly out of Bob's generation is singing it. And I haven't heard that version. Maybe it's good. I don't, he covers three other Dylan songs on this record, by the way, but you got to wonder like when someone, so far removed from Dylan's generation is singing it at that point. Is it become almost like a little bit of a joke and that it's like, Oh, he's just singing the song. Now again, I don't mean to say anything bad about our lives. He's a fine actor. And obviously had a fairly long career. Um, as a, I mean, I know he sang a lot, obviously he had a big, he sang a lot of Christmas songs, stuff like that, but I didn't know that he covered modern for his time rock acts as much as he did, but naming a whole album, the times they are changing, um, is kind of a flex uh, on Pearl Ives' part. And then, of course, it's been used a lot in commercials. And that might be another thing, I think, that might give people who come to the song 
later later in life as a like oh it's it's just like a thing you hear you know steve jobs used it in an apple commercial um, does it still get royalties does it still sign up yes. on this oh. yes i mean that's well that's oh. the thing is that he got into well he used it he allowed it to be used for a, a um, commercial for a hedge fund manager and you yeah. know that got it he got into a lot of people got a game of kind of a lot of shit about that it was like really like a, a hedge fund and you're going to use this song and then the other one I found, which was a cover of the song by singer Susan Calloway, was used in a commercial for the 2022 Stanley Cup Finals. The commercial <laughs> featured an edited sequence of handoffs of the cup between former cup-winning players with Calloway's version accompanying. Now, okay, I mean, not to dump on hockey, but I, you know, I don't give a shit about hockey. But, I mean, when you're using the song to talk about the Stanley Cup, uh, may uh, has it really lost any meaning at that lost all its meaning at that point yeah I mean, well i mean that's not good i, I didn't know <laughs> about the, I, I didn't know about the hedge fund um but you know one of the things about this is that you know the hedge fund just is when 10 years ago something like that no, i think about 20 something like it was in the, it was in the that, 90s if i remember correctly okay well first off th- there's nothing that that dylan could you know dylan could if he announces, you know, tomorrow that this song was always supposed to be about the 1930s um, movement that got FDR into into office, <laughs> it doesn't change that for you know from the time the song was released until now, we've all thought it was something else, and you know the hedge fund in the 90s is doesn't change what the what the song meant throughout the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, and I don't think it changes what it means now because I, I think, you know, I, I didn't know about the hedge fund. I kind of wish I didn't know now, but that's how these <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh. <laughs> um, so I, I was trying to remember. There's a there's a movie with what's it? Tim Robbins, where he's like a right wing. Bob Roberts. Bob Roberts. Bob Roberts. It's the, a great movie. Yeah. The the times they are a changing back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like that is at least, it, it, you know, it's so against the spirit of the song that it winds up being in the spirit of the song. Right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a movie. Someday I have to cover that for this show because it, that is such a movie steeped in Dylan uh, historical data that only someone who is a deep fan of Dylan, I think, will appreciate the how much oh. – Robbins is sort of taking the piss out of the the legend by 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 playing someone completely opposite by just taking everything Dylan did and then turning the guy into this you know right wing knucklehead you know I mean it's that's just the ter- I remember seeing that in the theater and laughing more than anybody else because I was catching all the references you know it was all these all these obscure Dylan references and but again I will say I, I, despite what I just said and talking about how it's been used in places that kind of does strip it of its meaning a little bit because it just becomes kind of an empty phrase. I will say this. Uh, in, in 2008, somebody, some earnest person, took the song, just the song, the original track from the record, and put it over a montage of Barack Obama as he was running for president. And as much as I feel like a, a damn sap saying this because of what's happened since, you know, I remember watching it and feeling like, Oh, the song is as yes, I know it was written 40 years earlier, but the song is as powerful and resonant 
as it's ever going to be for me because this is what I'm feeling in this moment. I'm feeling like we are turning a corner in a way that's significant. And again, you know, forgetting all the horrible stuff that has happened since and how we've gone back, you know, back in time for a lot of things. That moment, I remembered watching it on like YouTube or wherever I watch it and feeling that the song was new again for me, you know, that it worked again, that I was like, oh, this is, this is a song I'm intimately familiar with, but I'm seeing it presented in a new way, in a new moment, and it's very powerful. And so that's the song, like, okay, yeah, the song in the right moment can still be incredibly powerful. No, I haven't seen that, but yeah, I, I'm right there with you. I mean, the, that was a... It, this sounds so petty, but um, that fall, um, because uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm a talking points memo guy. Like I figure our politics are pretty similar, but I'm also a Philadelphia Phillies fan. So we had this, you know, like I said, it's totally petty, but we had this double jackpot of the Philadelphia Phillies World Series and then the Barack <laughs> Obama victory. <laughs> and I understand the historical stakes or are very different, but I get way too emotionally caught up in sports. And, and this was just, this was, you know, this was just such a, you know, such a great time. And yeah, no, it was, it was uplifting. And, and I, I totally, if I, if I had heard that then I, I would have had the same reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I, I, you know, I look back on that now and I go, you naive fool, but, but at the moment, you know, it worked for me now. Surprisingly enough, this was not released as a single in the U.S. I did not know. I would have thought this would have been a natural single. It was released overseas as a single, but not here in America, which is very, very strange to me. I feel like, good Lord, if there's any song that seems like to just, you know, kind of exist in its own little thing. Yeah, it was part of a record, but the song stands you know, so alone because it is so unique. That uh, that you would think Columbia would have seen this is clearly a single, but they they, they did not. So okay, it just exists on a record, and of course, it's appeared on every compilation that he's ever put out: the Greatest Hits and Dylan and Greatest Hits Volume Two and or Volume uh, whatever the the big you know, the big collection and any sort of Greatest Hits collection, any sort of you know box set, it's going to end up uh, appearing on. And you know, like I said it's he lasted it in two thousand nine. Uh, that's a long time ago at this point. It's fourteen years. But it's, you know, I feel like it's something that, uh, you know, you, you never know with him. He might return to it. He might decide to dress it up in, an, in a new way um, and, and dig it out and, and perform it again. Because it said it's, it's obviously a song that, imagine, again, having a song of this legendary status kind of in your hip pocket, you know, that you can pull. I kind of even talk about with that dead song. Uh, that yeah, the, yeah, yeah. this amazing classic song and then eh, i don't feel like playing that one like, like you know anybody else would open their concerts with this till the day they die yeah, i mean that's dylan i mean you know mr tambourine man you know like mm. so many other artists of that period would have you know would have died to write something like that but it's you know <laughs> it's not among his what most 10 notable songs or something i mean i don't want yeah let me. I want to ask you one question. Yeah. Um, what do you think of What do you think of that album, The Times They Are Changing? Okay. Um, it's. I mean, I think it's a great record. It's not one of my favorites, just because. You know, I mean, there's. It's. It's. It's a lot of songs that are. Uh, it, it's a lot of songs that are very powerful, but they're not a whole lot of fun to listen to. I guess. Yeah. Is the way I would put it. Like only a pawn in their game with God on our side, the Ballad of Hollis Brown. Good Lord, the second track is Ballad of Hollis Brown, <laughs> which, 
we will have somebody on to defend that song. Not that it necessarily needs defending exactly, but that to me is like, that's like an exercise in just how much you, you're going to tolerate, you know, <laughs> like it's that, that kind of metronome sound. And then just this bitter, miserable song of, of a guy and, you know, his children are starving to death and it's just like, you know, but then of course there's songs of, of incredible beauty. I mean, one too many mornings and boots of Spanish leather. And as I already mentioned, when the ship comes in, those are gorgeous. The love songs are absolutely gorgeous, but it's just, it's so dour. It's so serious. I mean, even you know, his intentions are kind of very obvious from the kind of Dorothea Lang esque photo, you know, I mean, he's, okay, he's yeah. you know, where he's sort of scowling on the cover and it's in this, this sort of the sepia toned, uh, image, although depending on where you find uh, Google searches, it'll be just straight up black and white or the sepia. I think the original record is actually sort of a sepia tone. But I mean, it's, it's you know, he's he's leaning hard into the, you know, Woody Guthrie of the new generation kind of thing. And again, the songs are brilliant, but again, just compared it to freewheeling or, you know, the late electric stuff, it just, I mean, it's, just, it's just not super fun to listen to. What about you? No, I think... Uh, I don't love it. It's of the the pre-motorcycle crash albums. It's my least favorite. Mm. Um, you know, I'm basically an early Dylan plus Blood on the Tracks and Desire. Oh, and, and Slow Train. Um, those are my albums. And this is, you know, I, I can't point to, so I, I do like Hollis Brown. I do like, you know, I'd say each of the songs. But I think that it, it's just kind of unbalanced. You know, um and you know, it has Masters of War. It has these messages and blown in the wind, obviously. But it's got something like, um, "Honey, just allow me one more chance." Right, it's much right. lighter. It takes himself much less seriously. And I, this album, it, it's it's a little tough to, you know. I think I, you know, I could take maybe Freewheeling and another side and this one and kind of, you know, chop them up to it's more to to my personal liking and, and right. probably get more out of a bunch of these songs yeah uh like i said and then you know there was he recorded we've talked about this on other episodes he's rec- he recorded a ton of material for the record that he chose to leave off and you know and so he definitely again was was going as he said the finger point songs uh he that was what he was trying to put across he, he left a lot of the more personal material behind in favor of these direct messages about you know, these uh, people dying in the dust bowl or whatever. I mean, again, that was the sort of a, the, the approaching and you look at the cover and it's just, it, it, it announces its intentions right there from the front image. Again, we talk about, you look at the cover to freewheeling and it's this young apple cheeked Bob with, with Sue's Rotolo and they look so happy. And then there's all these kind of really serious songs. But then, as you say, there's some lighter stuff, but this is just so much like, Hey, Hey everybody, this is serious. This is serious music we have setting out here. But again, the the opening track is so kind of bright and open and accepting in its own way uh, that again, it's still I it again, it's not a song I listen to a whole ton. But when I do dig it out, I'm reminded how great it is. And again, that phrase That's is good. just you know, it's yeah. just it's just it's seeped into the culture. It, it's as part of as America as much as you know, God bless America or any other phrase you could think of that just everyone knows. They just knew that they know the phrase. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, Noah, um, is there anything else we want to say about the times are changing for we, before we wrap up here? No, this has been, this has been great. You know, like I said, I've been, uh, I've been listening to your podcast for, for a little while now. I'm really enjoying the, enjoying listening to it. And 
imagining what I would say if I was actually <laughs> on it. And now I know. There you know. There you know what it's like to actually be on the show. So uh, before we wrap up here, I have to ask a standard question, which is if there is any album sessions that you could sit in on, that, that you would be a special guest of Bob's and you would be sitting in the corner watching it get made, uh, what album would that be? So I've heard you ask this, so I've thought about it. And even though it's it's not my favorite album, uh, Basement Tapes, you just hear the fun like sleeping out of your speakers when you listen to it. So I have to, I have to imagine that just you would have just been this fun, playful time listening to those recordings and being around with the, with that whole crew. So I go basement tapes. That's a fine answer. And again, you get the most bang for your buck with that. Cause you're getting like yeah, three months of that. sessions. I, I don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> you're hanging out there a lot. So, all right. Well, that's a per- again, perfectly great answer. So uh, before we sign off, Noah, why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? You know, I, it's a, it's a mouthful. It's in, at well, Twitter at N C S H U S T E R M A N. Um, like I said, it's, it's a mouthful, but that's <laughs> it's at N Schusterman uh, on Twitter. Um, not much about Dylan there occasionally, um, but um, angry political quotes, discussion <laughs> of the second amendment from a critical historical standpoint and um, random Simpsons references. <laughs> that's always good uh well then you know what one other thing kind of ending where we began do you are there a lot of other dylan fans you run into in in hong kong do you is that does that come up no it, it doesn't come up i'm so unsocial you know if, <laughs> my, if my, my wife and my son are not my, my son was briefly a dylan fan but um but that passed um <laughs> it's uh, over well, it's distinctly over well it could come again um but he's you know he's no, he his there's a period where his favorite song was uh, "Hard Rain's Gonna Fall," but mm. uh, if I push it, it's it's, it's gonna backfire. <laughs> um, but uh, no, and uh, you know, ninety percent of my social interaction is with one of those two. Um, my students don't really, as far as I can tell, my students don't really know that much about Dylan. Um, I actually I did a U.S. history class, and I I, um, I played them a bunch of what do you got through. Uh, and they, they appreciated that. Hmm. Um, but no, uh, I don't. But, you know, among the other professors there, you know, if I uh, if I drop Dylan references, I'll assume that, that some of them will, will catch it. But it doesn't gotcha. feel that. Okay. All right. Well, again, Noah, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it again. And I appreciate you taking time out of your your sojourn back to the United States to, to do this. Because I said, I really wanted to talk to you and uh, you know, sometimes the uh, time differences can be quite daunting for certain guests. So I appreciate we had a chance to to do this. So again, thank you so much for being here. All right. Thanks so much, Rob. You take all care. right. So, uh, all right, everybody, if you want to find back episodes of the show, go to our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And then finally, if you want to support the Find Water Podcast Network, of which Pod Dylan is a part, please go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. There you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name checked on a show of your choice, so big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hustle, George Doherty, Bucky Meckle, Paul Ruther, and Henry Bernstein for their support of Pod Dylan. I very much appreciate it. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. This is my bar, not his stupid, yuppie lounge. <laughs> I think Sam's overreacting just a bit, don't you? Ciao, gang. Ready! Times they are changing, Mr. Peter. <laughs>